Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service and hear a little bit more about your story and uh, see if I can get you plugged in here at InTown as well. Um, This morning, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And last week, we left off with the church in a perilous place. And if we could go back into our study of Luke that we did over the last year and, and trace the resolve of these newfound leaders of the church, we should all be a little bit worried Because it was just a few short weeks ago in the timeline that that Luke is describing for us that Peter was denying that he even knew Jesus. And the rest of the disciples were running around like chickens caught in a hen house with a fox. And then they get confused by the resurrection. But they do come face to face with the resurrected Messiah. But then they hole up in this rented room and, and it seems like they're just trying to wait out this storm going on around them until Pentecost happens, until the Holy Spirit comes in power and and the apostles, Peter in particular, speak up with boldness about who Jesus really is and the church just seems to explode and things seem to be going great. Until last week, as we saw, Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin. And Brian did a great job of summarizing all of the different camps within this religious, uh, civil Jewish ruling body that we won't get into this week. But suffice it to say, when the Sanhedrin tells you to do something, you do it. And they told Peter and John to stop all of their preaching in the name of Jesus immediately. And so the question we're left with is, what will the church and her leaders decide to do? Well, this morning, we're going to see that they're going to put their money where their mouth is. Let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the New Testament reading from Acts chapter 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together.
Father, as we just sang together, we are living in an in-between place knowing that soon our hope will change to fruition, that our faith will become sight, and our prayers to you, our, our longing for you will turn into praise and fulfillment as we find ourselves seated at the wedding banquet table of our Savior. I ask this morning that you would be made beautiful in our sight, that the work of Jesus would be made to be so lovely to us that we would want nothing more than to come in and take part in his death and his life and be part of the new kingdom that is colliding with our own hearts. I ask that the Spirit would be powerful in this place this morning, that we would hear the voice of our Savior speaking to us again through your word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I was getting kicked out of college. Many of you know that I, I went to a, a, a not a normal college, okay? So I, I hadn't done anything particularly bad. If you must know, I was, I think, over 21 years old at the time, and, and I had gone trick-or-treating, which I realize is childish. Uh, and apparently that was against the rules at, at the very strict college that I was attending. And I didn't really know that, though I should have been able to guess it. Uh, but that wasn't why they were going to kick me out. Here I was a senior. I had one semester left. Uh, and I had decided when I was a freshman at this college, I knew some seniors my very first year there who got kicked out the morning of graduation. They were in graduation line. They got kicked out for something they had done the summer before, and so they didn't graduate. And so that always caused me a lot of fear and angst. And, and one of the things, uh, right or wrong, that this particular culture uh, tried to, to kind of imbue into their students was that if you see anyone doing anything that's against the rules, even something as innocuous as trick-or-treating, you should, quote, turn them in to, the, to the, the authorities so that they'll get in trouble and, you know, can learn the errors of their ways. Well, I decided as a freshman that I was not going to do that. Unless it was something, you know, like my roommate murdered someone or something, then obviously, yeah, I'll, I'll turn somebody in. But if it was something that, that wasn't really prohibited by scripture or just kind of a basic understanding of morality. I wasn't going to go around policing everyone. And so here I am four years later, and the reason that they want to kick me out is not because I went trick-or-treating, although they were pretty upset about that. Uh, I think because I got really good candy. But they wanted to kick me out because they knew that there were other people with me, and they wanted me to tell them who they were. And so now I have a choice to make. I had already said to all my friends, you know, 17-year-old me, yeah, man, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be that guy. And now I have a choice. I can either stand true to the thing that I said I was going to do, or I could, you know, not. And then I would get to stay and graduate, which was kind of important to me. I, I was almost done. I didn't want to have to start all the way over. But I also had a vision it wasn't just that I thought that, that turning someone in was wrong. I firmly believed that my father, my dad, would be extremely disappointed in me if I did that. My dad is a prison guard, and so narking, as we call it, was not encouraged in my family. You, you can go to someone and try to work out something that they did that was wrong, but you don't circumvent them and go tattle on them. Other families call it tattling. If you have a prison guard dad, you call it narking. So I, I have this choice 
but it's based on a vision. And I, I can either disappoint these authorities in my life or I can disappoint my father and, and not be true to my own word. Uh, I decided to not turn anyone in, and, and I talked it over with the administration, and I got to stay. So I did graduate. Congratulations to me. <laughs> this morning, we're going to continue kind of tracing this storyline that Brian started for us last week. And, and then we're going to turn and look at some implications of what Luke is telling us through this story. Um, but we're, what we're going to see is that the church, the leaders of the church, are, are in a situation where they are going to be forced to either continue on with the vision, with, with the thing that they believe, and act as if it's true or not. So Peter and John are released, and the first thing they do is return to their own. Now, it's important for us to realize that Luke is giving us details of this story in a very specific way because he's wanting us to see how this first generation of Christians conceived of their relationship to the church. And so what we see here and what Luke tells us throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and and indeed it spills over into the whole New Testament, is that there really is no such thing as a Christian apart from the church. Peter and John's identities have been reoriented. So they don't just return to friends or to an association, they return to their own. It's this close-knittedness. And the first thing they do upon being threatened is return to their own. They've just been told to stop banding together in the name of Jesus, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and they return to the church, and they tell the church what happened to them, about how they were threatened and told to forego preaching about Jesus or doing anything in his name. And so the church, of course, decides to form a committee, the, the CTAP, the Committee to Avoid Persecution. They have a congregational meeting, and they assess, how can we preach so that, you know, the authorities don't really get mad at us? Let's not get in too much trouble. No, that's not what they did. They prayed. They immediately prayed, and they lift up their voices in unison. And, and I like to think of this scene, Luke is kind of like a playwright. And this is sort of like one of those scenes in the musical where suddenly everyone in the town square knows the exact same words and, and tune to a song that's never been sung before. And you're, it's, what's going on? Well, Luke is trying to show us that the early church had a, had a deep liturgy that they used uh, to worship, and it was a liturgy that was rooted in prayer and rooted in Scripture. And so the, the prayer that Luke actually records for us is an echo. It follows closely a pattern of the prayer that I, that I chose for our Old Testament reading this morning. It's another famous prayer that, that these Jewish Christians would have known. So just as this is a solemn prayer for the church, Isaiah 37 records a solemn prayer for Israel. And so in Isaiah 37, here's King Hezekiah, and he, he has Jerusalem uh, in a bind. His, his nation is being surrounded by an evil army, and the first thing that he does is pray in a very similar manner to the church. And so here we can see that the church echoes what Hezekiah says. They offer up a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. They begin their prayer by describing God as their creator, as the creator of all that is, which is to say that they acknowledge their dependence on him as his creatures. And notice how Luke shapes this early liturgy of the church. The prayer tells the exact same story that all of the sermons he records for us so far have said, that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah. He's the one spoken of in Psalm 2. And then in this early Christian prayer, they apply all of these titles in Psalm 2 to the things that had just happened. The nations, kings, peoples, and Gentiles get applied to the various groups who were bound together in the murder of Jesus. And in case we missed it a couple chapters ago, Luke gives us another little crumb of confusion. 
Yes, all of these other parties are held responsible for the death of Jesus, and yet it was done and brought about in the will and power of God, the plan of God from all time before. I'm, again, going to avoid getting into how that works. Uh, as I said the last time we looked at, at a very similar idea in Luke, he doesn't describe for us. How is it that humans are responsible and God is sovereign? That's maybe not the best question. That's not the question that Luke is answering. What he is saying is we are, and he is. Now, I pointed out the prayer of Hezekiah here, not simply to show how the early church was rooted in Hebrew scriptures, though they definitely were, but also to highlight a key difference between the prayer of an Old Testament king and the prayer of a New Testament church. Hezekiah prays for deliverance from his enemies, and that's not a bad prayer. That was not the wrong thing for him to pray. And yet the church, though they have followed this pattern of his prayer, does not do so. They pray instead for boldness. They don't ask their enemies to be judged. They don't ask that they be protected from persecution. They don't ask for an easy life. They ask for courageous speech. They ask that this bold proclamation would be accompanied by great signs and wonders and healings and that it would be done through the very name of Jesus. You see what happens? Five minutes ago, the Sanhedrin had just said, stop doing and saying anything in the name of Jesus. And the very first thing the church does is they pray that God will begin to do more things in the name of Jesus. The mouth of the church speaks about Jesus obsessively. The mouth of the church cries out in prayer to the creator God that he would give the church boldness to keep opening her mouth to speak about Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit shows up and the earth shakes just as the mountain shook when God came down to visit his people in the stories of old. And then what happens? God answers their prayer. They begin to speak the word of God boldly. And what Luke means by word of God here is it's the message of the gospel. He tells us that the apostles are said to continue testifying to the resurrection of Jesus with great power. The response of the church to threats and persecution is to be unified in prayer and then to be available to be the answers of their own prayers. They ask God that the the gospel message would continue to be spoken boldly. And then what does he do? He speaks it boldly through them. So that's where their mouth is. But Luke moves us right into another summary statement about the life of the early church. And literally what he says is their heart and their soul were one. And in classical literature, word order is very important. And if you wanted to have something emphasized, you would save that word to the very end. So Luke is stressing for us again the unity of the early church. And it's also very interesting that the the phrasing that he uses here about heart and soul, he's appealing to both Jewish and Greek conceptions of humanity. And so he's, he's setting us up for what's going to take place in a couple more chapters in Acts as we see this Jewish-Gentile collision in this new church of Christ. But what he tells us here is that this unity expresses itself in financial generosity. Luke is going out of his way in this description of the church to, to set the church apart from the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded her. So in, in this sort of Greek culture that the Roman Empire inherited, friendship had a very clear kind of philosophical and practical meaning. It, it, was, it was a very close tie, but mostly it was based on reciprocity. And that's not really so much unlike most of our friendships today. Most people have most of their friends from the same social class to which they belong. 
And so what would happen in, in this time period would be that you would only have people from your same economic class because they would invite you over for dinner and the expectation was you would invite them over for dinner and it had to be just as good, if not better, which means that the rich and the poor simply didn't interact socially. But here Luke is describing for us people of all economic classes being banded together in a new way. Reciprocity was no longer the unifying factor. Rather, they all shared their possessions. And this sharing got to the point that there were no needy people among them. Now, Brian pointed out a couple of weeks ago that often these passages in Acts describing the unity and the, and the financial uh, unity of the early church often get forced into 20th century political ideas of wealth and class, something that Luke obviously would have no knowledge of. And it's important for us to remember that Luke here is giving us a composite picture of how the ministry of Jesus continues through the church. He is not trying to give us an idea about economic policy. Now, that being said, Luke was a communist. That's not true. All right, seriously. We can't, we can't say that Luke is trying to give us hard and fast rules about economic policy for all times because in one breath, he says that no one claimed any of their possessions as their own. Then he also tells us that some people still own private property. So the point is not whether private property is right or wrong. He has nothing to say towards that. Rather, Luke is, is trying to tell us uh, not even so much how Christians viewed wealth primarily at this time, but rather he's building on the teachings of Jesus regarding money that we looked at in the study of Luke's gospel, and he's merely now just recording for us how the church lives those out. The unity of the early church was not primarily a philosophical concept. It was not primarily a conversational topic. It wasn't initially something that the apostles went about reminding the people of all the time. Rather, it was a reality as close to the church's being as air is to the human body. In fact, the unity of the church here is not really being described as as a friendship on speed, so much better than the friendship of the world. Rather, it's being described as a family. Just as a parent would give food or clothing or shelter to their child without thinking twice, so the early church was bound together as family and met the needs of the poor in their midst without expectation of reciprocity. It's just a matter of course. I have extra and you have a need. Of course, I'll use it to meet it. It's been said that Luke's description of the church here is idealistic and idyllic, that he's kind of looking back and remembering what he wanted to remember, that it was so much better than it really was. And we could say that his description of the church is idealistic in a sense. This sort of generosity is ideal to the church in the same sense that breathing is ideal to the human body. Without it, you cease to exist. Paul will later go on to describe uh, in much more theological detail what Luke is describing for us here. And Paul tells us that the church is a body. Refusing to meet the needs of those in our midst is as ludicrous as not breathing or not eating or not tending a sprained ankle. So what we can see is that the talk of the world may be cheap, but talk in the church always costs something. Now, I'd like us to circle back and think about what Luke has been doing throughout his gospel and in the book of Acts and what he's kind of using in the trajectory of the entire scripture and kind of look at it through a lens of the new kingdom. And so we're going to see how our use of proclamation and possessions fit in to this bigger theme. 
So in, in very broad terms, there's one lens that we can use to look at the entire corpus of Scripture, and that is the Scripture of kingdom or the new kingdom. So the meta narrative that Scripture gives us of world history is that it goes from creation all the way to recreation. And part of the remaking of all things that God has been doing in this world includes the colliding of his kingdom with the kingdoms of the world. And so much of the New Testament is about this intersect. It's about this place where heaven and earth meet, the collision point between the kingdom of God and his rebellious creation. And so followers of Jesus... People who are members of the church who, as Luke describes, are called to continue this mission that Jesus started of proclaiming the inbreaking of the kingdom of God are, as Paul describes, citizens of the new kingdom. Which means that when we talk about things like Christian formation or discipleship, ethics, morality, or virtue, we are essentially building a vision of what it means to be citizens in the kingdom of God. And this is really tricky ground because the interrelation of grace and virtue in Christianity is not always an easy thing to parse out. So let me just state very clearly right at the get-go. We believe that through the grace and mercy of God, we are brought into a reconciled relationship with him based on what Jesus has done, not anything that we do, past, present, or future. That's what we believe But as the late, great Dallas Willard used to say, if you believe something, that means you are willing to act as if it were true. So Luke here is giving us markers of what life in the church should look like. It's a life together, saturated in prayer and marked by courageous proclamation of the gospel message and radical generosity. And if we believe that that's what we have been called into, then we will act as if it's true. So first of all, we must recognize that being together, really together, and speaking the gospel message with courage and using our possessions with generosity requires moral fortitude. But these things cannot be summoned simply by moral effort. I think the way that N.T. Wright discusses virtue is helpful here. He tells the story of pilot Sully Sullenberger. Do you guys remember this guy? In 2009, his plane takes off and flies immediately into a flock of birds, not the band, an actual flock of birds, flock of seagulls, I guess was the band. And Sullenberger has to make this, this split-second decision. And so he's trying to talk to the tower about, you know, can I get back to land? Is there a clear space? And he has really not a lot of time, but he makes this decision so quickly to land in the Hudson River that he actually avoids death of anyone, injury of anyone on the entire plane. And many people started to refer to this landing as a miracle. It was a miracle. I mean, can you believe that this happened? The engines failed completely and yet no one died. But when you ask Sullenberger about it, he says this, one way of looking at this might be that for 42 years, I have been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. Sullenberger realizes he didn't just get this information downloaded to him in the moment that he needed it. No, he worked hard over a period of decades doing little things, training himself until it just came naturally. This is how Christian virtue works. It takes effort. 
It takes our hearts, our minds, and our wills, and it includes the Spirit of God working within us. And it springs from a vision that all things are already ours in Christ, and so now we just have to live like it. And it starts small. But over time, as we continue to make small choices as kingdom people, suddenly, when we're in the thick of it, we make the most natural choice in the world, and it is completely in keeping with the kingdom of Jesus. So in college, when I wasn't trick-or-treating, I minored in creative writing. And one of the things that my professors from, from every creative writing class I took, whether it was poetry or short stories or uh, screenplay writing, was this. They all said the exact same thing. The difference between writers and non-writers. Writers write. Writers write. Everybody always says, oh, man, I've got a great idea for a TV show. I've got a great idea for a novel. And we just assume that someday the whole entire script for the TV show will download into our brains or the whole novel will just be there and we can just speak it out. But if you never pick up a pen, you'll never be a writer because writers write. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, we are committing ourselves to taking part in that. And I think that many of us assume that that one day we'll just wake up and we'll be better people. We'll be somehow magically more like Jesus. We'll just be different. But that's not how life in the kingdom works. And it's not how virtue is developed. We will never just wake up one day and be in shape or be fluent in Chinese. And in much the same way, we don't just wake up one morning suddenly generous, suddenly comfortable being in community. Life together as a deeply knit community doesn't just happen. It's not easy. These things require practice. But moralism, which is so easy to fall into, moralism just sucks the power and adventure out of the Christian life. Moralism would have us look at this passage and say, be united, be courageous, and be generous, or else. And then what happens? If we can actually achieve any sort of generosity or any sort of boldness, we become prideful. Our preaching becomes angry, and we sneer at people who don't live like us. But the gospel says, You have been made one in Jesus. You were dead in a ditch, but you have now been given the deepest, most mysterious riches of life because God himself took on death for you so that you might have peace with him. And it is in this gospel gospel restfulness that we can begin to put these things into practice. And so now, now I'm I'm going to preach to you, okay? And I hope that it goes without saying that I'm preaching to myself and that these are things that take time and they take practice and they take effort. And it does not change God's love toward us one whit. Okay? Let me say it again. We believe the absolute core of everything that we do, our entire identity, is that God loved us enough to die for us while we were still dead in our sins and that he gives us life without us doing anything. Okay? But what Luke is calling us to here, he's saying is that if you are a Christian, whether or not you join up with in-town is not the point, but you need to be in a committed relationship with a local expression of God's church somewhere because you are a kingdom person. You belong to a new community. You have been baptized into a new family, and the primary way that you are going to encounter change and you are going to encounter Jesus is through consistently bumping up against other people within this kingdom. And these people will encourage you. 
They will confound you, challenge you, rebuke you, and forgive you. And they will ask for your forgiveness as well. So this morning, start enacting community by finding someone you don't know and asking them about themselves. Secondly, start to make corporate prayer your primary response to anything that happens in life, to any of life's challenges. And you do it by engaging in prayer personally, as a family, as a community group. Come out to one of our prayer nights in the future. You can head to the prayer corner over here during communion every week. You can grab some friends here on a Sunday morning and just ask for prayer. And then allow that prayer to shape you into a courageous message bearer of the gospel. And finally, start to cultivate a life of generosity. And you do that by giving regularly. That's why every week we have a time of offering in our service that we can learn to be generous people. This morning we had a diaconal offering to meet the needs of others in our community so that we can learn to be generous people and provide for those around us. And guess what will happen? When life shipwrecks all around us, as it will, someday it will, we will, without even thinking, respond as one body in prayer with courage and generosity to continue proclaiming the message of Jesus. That's what we're called to be. Let's pray as we come to the table. Jesus, we have been given your spirit. And in a moment, we will come to one table and partake in a meal that unites us to one another and to your church in all places at all times. I ask that as we come to this meal, that it would form us, that it would shape us, that we would begin to take small steps, to make small choices, to live deeply with one another, to pray intimately with one another, to find courage in your spirit and in the truth that you are Lord of the world, and to go about proclaiming that message with our lives that we would become generous people as we are faced with needs around us. I ask that we would, we would start doing that this morning with one another and throughout this week, and that we would do it with joy and in the power of your Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen.